Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide File. It's a murder from 1973. The longer a case goes cold, the harder it is to solve. Maybe if it was solved, if they could find out who did it, um, it would help. We're hoping that someone saw something, knows something, remembers something that might help us finally find justice for her. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast, a real-time investigative podcast looking into the 1973 unsolved homicide of Tina Davison. I'm Sean McGregor. Satanic Panic a phrase that was widespread during the 1980s. But where did it start? And how did Satanism factor into Tina's case? A number of factors contributed to the increased interest in and fear of the occult during the late 1960s and 1970s. The Manson family in the late 60s culminated in a string of mass murders in the summer of 1969 that shocked the nation. That same year, Anton LaVey published the Satanic Bible, which became the seminal work of modern Satanism and the key text for the Church of Satan, a group LaVey had officially founded in 1966. The 70s saw the rise of other self-proclaimed former Satanists who insisted that the world was being run by Satanic witch cults. The growing fascination with the occult also coincided with the rise of a number of extremely well-publicized serial killings that took place in the 70s, such as the Zodiac and the Alphabet Killer, both of whom utilized ritualistic patterns in their killing, neither of whom were ever caught. Early in this investigation, I found a long and wild blog that was written about Tina. It was from an author by the name of Ratir Barabbas. He's a self-described author, witch, musician, artist, and a craftmaster. He claims to have known Tina and her friends. He makes some other wild claims. I'd like to read you portions of it. Some of it is kind of long-winded, so I cut out some parts that didn't need to be read. If you want to read it from start to finish, go to fratterbarabbas.blogspot.com It's entitled Dark Times in My Hometown It was dated Wednesday, March 3rd, 2010 He writes This is another biographical piece that I produced about an event that powerfully impacted and shaped me when I was a youth many years ago It was during the long months of winter that our tale really begins. Anyway, I remember one late afternoon, I was painting in my makeshift studio when someone came by briefly. The door was open, so I was slightly aware of what was going on in the halls. An attractive young girl came past the door with a couple of her friends. I'd never seen this woman before, but her friends were students with whom I had a slight acquaintance. I went up to the door to see who it was, and one of her friends said, This is the guy I was telling you about. She looked me in the eye and smiled a shy smile, and said rather directly, I gotta go, but we need to talk. I took this brief conversation in, 
and before I could reply, she and her friends had gone. I thought to myself, okay, nice looking, petite girl wants to talk to me, so I hope that she does. Normally, my peer group didn't want to talk to me about the occult or witchcraft, so this was a rare event, and one that I remembered quite well even years later. This is because the woman who spoke to me and told me that we needed to talk was named Tina Davison. She may have told me her name in parting, but I didn't remember it. I just remembered how lovely she looked and how bold and self-assured she seemed. A power to be reckoned with in a small package, I had thought. This happened in March of 1973. I had all but forgotten that some cute young woman had talked briefly to me and promised to talk more later. I absorbed in difficulties and troubles of my own life and had little time or interest to be concerned with someone else's troubles. Yet for some reason, I began to feel a kind of dread, causing the joy of my new occult discoveries to darken and fade quickly away. It was as if time were holding its breath for some reason, and little happened that was either pleasant or stimulating for me. Then, on the afternoon of Tuesday, March 27th, there was a seemingly terrible commotion in the hallways. It was subtle. Some young women were crying and talking about some horrible incident. Then, there was kind of a hush throughout the hallway of the old school. I went around to pique my curiosity and discovered that some girl named Tina had been horribly murdered. She had been missing for 10 days now, and her naked body had been found at the 17th Street Beach area. She had been brutally murdered and then stabbed in the throat and chest 61 times. Well, and I'd like to take a minute to interject here. For the record, Tina wasn't missing for 10 days. I have not read anything even remotely similar in any news articles. She was last seen on Monday night, March 26th, and her body was discovered Tuesday morning. Anyway, uh, he goes on. I was shocked by the news, but it didn't seem to be anyone that I had actually known, so it really didn't affect me, or so I thought. A day or so later, Tina's friends accosted me in my studio and told me that their dead friend had been trying to get a hold of me. Not being a member of the school since she was only 15 years old and too young to enroll, she'd been banned from coming into the building, having been caught hanging around with her friends on more than one occasion. Her friends were absolutely terrified that some group of Satanists that they all knew about had performed this horrible deed. I was shocked and dismayed to hear that this lovely, shy, petite, but tough young woman who had been trying to see me and who had briefly talked to me had met such a terrible end. Her two friends, one was named Peggy and the other was called Cricket, invited me over to their home to meet with them and their friends to talk about what they're all going to do. They wanted me to magically protect them from this group of young thugs. I agreed, so I found myself over at their place, a basement bedroom and living room that had a lace and black silk doorway. These women, of course, wanted revenge and justice, but my magical abilities were certainly not up to the task. All I could do was console them and offer forms of magical protection. Then I went home deeply troubled by what I had experienced. In the days following, 
I discovered I was having terrible nightmares. Scenes of the grisly murdered occur as if I were the one being murdered. I also had all sort of strange sensations and thoughts that were definitely not part of my normal mental regimen. This next part coming up here is uh, where the story gets very... How do I phrase this? Um, It gets very interesting, to say the least. He continues... As soon as I realized I was being possessed by the spirit of this dead woman, I was obsessed with her, and her image and thoughts seemed to penetrate my very being. To the core of myself, I was no longer one person. I was now housing two people, although my normal self maintained a strong dominance, thankfully. I began to have conversations with Tina in my temple, since that seemed to be where I could sort out all of this, and here and properly sense the other soul possessing me in a distinct and clear manner. Tina told me that she was afraid and confused. She knew that she was dead, but she didn't know what to do next. Of course, neither did I, so we were both stumped by this strange occurrence. A few days later, I confided to a friend who had occult leanings and some experience about what was going on, and he suggested using the Tibetan Book of the Dead, to help the spirit of Tina find its way to the other side. I would act as her guide. Uh, He then goes on and spends quite a lot of time describing the ritual he would perform, which you can read if you want to. But then finally, he goes on. I recall performing this ritual quite vividly, and the vision that I had is still accessible, almost as if it happened yesterday. I saw myself walking with Tina to a great veil of light that stretched in all directions from the ground of what seemed like a desolate wasteland with a strange city in the hidden distance. We were both wearing magical robes and walking hand in hand like lovers. She parted from me, then walked up to the veil and turned to face me one last time. She said, Don't seek to avenge my death. It was done by no one I knew in life. I wish for peace and happiness to all. Forget this bitter event and live life to its fullest. Know this, that I did find you at last. And now I am going to my final place of peace. We have met and joined briefly together. So maybe that's what might have been had I lived, or perhaps more. What's done is done, and nothing can change it. I leave with a tear and a smile. So saying that, she passed beyond the veil, and I saw and felt her presence no more within me. She was truly gone, and the spell had been very successful, even more than I had anticipated. I felt almost abandoned, as if there was a gaping hole left in me, like someone very dear and important was gone forever. I was puzzled over her words, and only dimly remembered until recently. I drew a colored picture of this vision that I saw of her standing before the veil and made a painting of it later. It was an astonishing occurrence, even for one as young and inexperienced as I was. I believe that if Tina had not been murdered, that something wonderful and romantic might have happened between us. Who knows, maybe she might have been the mother of my children that I never had. It really shaped my destiny. Instead of finding a life partner at an early age, 
I wandered from relationship to relationship with many years in between them. Uh, I don't really know how to take those last few statements that he wrote. Um, Honestly, I'll just let you be the judge of that. So he goes on. Tina was very likely the victim of a serial killer since she sought no vengeance or retribution against the one who had killed her. She had been hitchhiking in the area and was picked up by this man. A one in a million chance since if anyone else had picked her up or if she'd been delayed or not there, someone else might have died instead. She said that she didn't know who killed her, but released from the cares and worries of life, she did not want to dwell on it. She had implored me not to perform any magic against her killer, and had implied that the group of Satanists she had known had not been responsible for her death. I promised not to perform any magic against her killer, but I stubbornly believed that the young group of Satanic punks were responsible. I was not alone in that belief. Her friends had been absolutely terrified, thinking that this group of satanic thugs had been the perpetrators of the murder, who would thus seek to strike again. They sought me out to aid and comfort them, and I did what magic I knew and could share with them. There were no further incidents, since the event of the murder appeared to have broken up the satanic group, probably because they had nowhere else to meet. I held on to my belief that the satanic gang had done the deed, as did Tina's friends. During this interlude, I met and briefly befriended some of Tina's closest friends, including a beautiful dark-haired and brown-eyed girl who was slightly older than me named Cricket. She was originally from Salem, and her mother still lived at the address of Nine Gallows Hill Road. Being older and also hip to magic and witchcraft, Cricket was kind of the leader of this group, although Peggy had a very strong and determined personality as well, acting as kind of a den mother for this group of young women. A dim recollection of mine is going to a bar with Cricket and a friend of hers to see where the satanic punks had gathered. Uh, I hate to interrupt again, but I have to point something out. In 1973, the legal drinking age in Wisconsin was 18, so you couldn't get into a bar if you were underage. The author claims that he was in high school at the time. He also claims that Peggy and Cricket were Tina's best friends. Uh, I was told that he graduated in 1973, so it's possible that he could have been 18 in March. Uh, Tina was 15, about to be 16. Was this guy and all Tina's friends 18 years or older? It just seems kind of odd that 18-year-olds would be hanging out with someone three years younger. Uh, it might have been a little bit different when I was in high school as opposed to the 70s. I don't know. Just something that popped into my head while reading this. Anyway, he uh, he continues. I recall Cricket pointing them out to me with a certain amount of personal venom. She even got out of the booth that we were sitting in and went over to where several youths in dark clothing and leather jackets were sitting on stools before the bar and said something to them, which I didn't hear. The leader got off his stool and stood before Cricket, saying something to the effect, We had nothing to do with that. I also vaguely remember him looking quite distressed and shouting at Cricket, Stop telling people that we did that. Stop talking to the cops. I also thought Cricket might have said something like, What are you going to do about it if I don't? 
Then the leader backed down and just said, Just cool it. We didn't do it. Even though at the time I had disbelieved their statements of innocence, today I must state that they were probably telling the truth. Nothing about their actions seemed to indicate anything other than shock, horror, and dismay at what happened to Tina. He states that eventually this little group of friends would go their separate ways, but he adds, My friends Bob and Mark were a great solace and refuge for me. We traveled around in Bob's old car, dropping LSD, smoking pot, and behaving quite strangely. We would use the drugs to enter into the underworld, a negative image of our own hometown, and found all sorts of unusual places, like a hidden drainage valley that went on for miles in the northwest part of town, and the desolate beach area off 17th Street where Tina's body had been discovered. The beach had become haunted with a horrific reputation and vibes that were dark, brooding, and terrible to behold, particularly when altered by drugs combined with a potent imagination. Many years have passed since that time. I fully realize now that my belief that some punks practicing Satanism had been responsible for Tina's murder was a complete fabrication. No one ever knew who had done the terrible deed, and the police had recently put out a post on their website to see if anyone could still possibly help them solve this case. My psychic impressions recently attempted to sense that the perpetrator was still at large, but I felt nothing, as if the murderer had killed himself or died in some other altercation. So that's uh, the majority of uh, Frater's blog. I'm not sure how you say his name. It's it's Frater Frat Fratterer. I'm not sure honestly, and I I don't want to say it wrong. I have reached out to him in numerous ways. First, I left a comment on his blog, and then I sent him a private message through the blogging service. Uh, a listener thought that she located him on Facebook underneath his real name, which I'm not going to post, but I messaged that account as well. Uh, I found another website that he owned, and I sent an email to the address that was listed. And after a couple weeks of waiting, I finally heard back from him. All that he verified was that he was, in fact, the author. I asked him for a phone interview and told him if he wanted to listen to the podcast first that he could go to our website. He said that he's seen the website, but he couldn't find the podcast. Even though there's numerous links to ways to listen from, you know, when I first released the first two episodes. So I just copied the links from the website and sent them to him. And then he went silent all day long uh, until much later that night. I received a new message from him. He said, quote, heard it. Don't know why you are obsessed about this tragic event. Good luck in your search, but it seems a little melodramatic and perhaps even a little bit exploitative to me. I lived then and experienced just a bit of it. But you weren't even born then. Even the place where Tina's body was found on Old North Beach no longer exists. The whole area was completely changed. I went there a few years ago, and no trace of the old beach is even there. Anyway, I wrote what I wrote in my blog, and you can talk about that and even read passages from it if you wish. But I see no reason to engage you in any kind of one-on-one. 
I am just suspicious of your motives for pursuing this thing. I suspect that others who were there and knew her or heard of that thing happening would feel the same way. I responded, quote, I see. I was just looking for more information on what you wrote, but I thank you anyway for your time. If you change your mind, let me know. And as a note, family and friends feel differently than you. Have a good night, sir. Uh, he didn't know why I was, quote, obsessed with this tragic event and that this podcast seems a little bit melodramatic and perhaps even a little bit exploitative. I personally don't think wanting to help do good is obsessed at all. If you see a suspicious man looking into your neighbor's windows and you take notes and inform the police, are you obsessed with watching your neighbors or are you just being a good neighbor? I think if more people took my mentality and helping that the world could be a slightly better place. It seems that Fratter was a little more obsessed with Tina stating how she could have been the mother to his children if she had not been murdered how something wonderful and romantic could have happened. If that's not obsessing, then I don't know what is. Also, I'm not making a penny on this podcast. In fact, I'm losing money doing this. After paying for audio equipment, buying the webpage, hosting the podcast, I'm spending my own money to try to research this. And as far as being melodramatic, is this podcast exaggerated? sensationalized or over-emotional? I don't exaggerate anything. I report facts as I get them. I don't sensationalize anything. I describe it exactly how I see it. He depicts Racine as a foggy and mysterious town, and I'm not sure what Racine was like in 1974, but it's definitely not that way today. So that seems a little sensationalized. And as far as being over-emotional... Like I said, I just report this case how I see it. If that invokes strong emotions in someone, there's probably a reason for that. This case is emotional. Any murder is emotional. So he declined my interview. I don't know what he expected me to ask him, but if he's listening, uh, he can hear the questions for himself. I wanted to ask him, uh, what exactly was a witch? What does a practitioner of ritualistic magic do? I wanted a little more clarity on that. I wanted to know why magic was spelled M-A-G-I-C-K. How is that different than the magic with no K? Since I couldn't ask him, I did a little bit of research, and it seems that magic with no K is just imitating magic, while magic that's spelt with a K is real magic. There you go. You learn something new every day. I also wanted to know how much of his blog was true and how much was fiction. A lot of listeners have pointed out his blogs to me, and all of them had some, well, interesting comments about it. He is an author, like a real published author. So one has to wonder how much of his work is true and how much he embellished on uh, through record request, I found that he graduated in 1973 from Walden, but I wanted to know how old he was at the time. And where was his, quote, 
makeshift studio that he was painting in when he first met Tina and her friend. And if it was actually like in Walden, then how did Tina get in? She did not attend there. I mean, did she sneak in? Did he ever find out exactly what Tina wanted to talk to him about? Did she seek him out for his powerful witch magic? Did she know that evil forces were after her and he was the only one who could protect her? Maybe um, was she crushing on him? Because it kind of seemed like he had quite the crush on her, at least. Was she just trying to talk to him so he could invite her to prom or take her out to dinner and a movie? Uh, it's hard to gather just from reading his blog, so a little clarity would have helped. I mean, he talked about how attractive she was numerous times. So I, I don't know, take that for what you want. He also said that Tina had been missing for 10 days, which we know just is not true. So why did he put that in there? Was he just taking artistic liberties with the truth, sensationalizing the story? Maybe his memory from 45 years ago just isn't that good. Or maybe the kids at the school were just making things up. You know how teenagers are. I wanted to know about that satanic group at the bar that Cricket started yelling at. Did they attend his school? Did he know who they actually were? I don't know why I wanted to know that, since he made it very clear in his blog that he believed that they had nothing to do with the murder. During the time that Tina was possessing him and speaking to him from beyond the grave, she made it abundantly clear that she did not know her killer, that it was just a random encounter, a one in a million chance, that if she had left a few minutes earlier or later that she could still be alive. So I wonder if she gave him any kind of description of the killer. Maybe she said something like, uh, I was hitchhiking because it was cold out and some old guy picked me up. He seemed nice because he was balding and kind of chubby and he had glasses, but he turned out to be a really bad guy. Tina also made him promise not to use his magic to seek vengeance against the killer. Why would she say that? Wouldn't she want the person who did this to her to pay for his crime? And what could he have actually done to the killer with his magic skills? Can he use his magic skills against me for questioning him on this podcast? He also said his psychic impressions led him to believe that the killer was no longer alive. Did those psychic impressions give him any more details on the killer? I think that Giving psychic impressions of what the killer looked like could have helped the police a little bit. But is that using magic for vengeance? Something he promised Tina he wouldn't do? One final question I had was, where was he on Monday, March 26th? Maybe around 9 p.m. Was he in his makeshift studio painting pictures? Was he in a basement somewhere practicing his magical witchcraft? Or perhaps he was driving around and spotted someone he knew hitchhiking. Perhaps he picked up this person and they wanted to talk to him in the past, but, you know, never got the opportunity. Maybe he thought that this person liked him in a wonderful and romantic way. And perhaps when he found out this wasn't the case, 
he was laughed at and maybe his ego got crushed. One of my first theories was that someone picking up Tina hitchhiking made sexual advances towards her. And then when she refused, the killer snapped and attacked her. I'm not accusing Fratter of this. For the record, I'm not accusing him of anything. I have zero evidence. Nothing. I have nothing but speculation, no evidence, no accusations. You know, I just have questions. And I wish I could have cleared it up with the questions that I just read. But I guess I don't get to have that chance. And we are only left to speculate. I know a lot of people locally and on the internet are leaning towards a satanic cult scenario that Tina was stabbed by devil worshipers and left out on display as a warning. Fratter didn't believe that back when it happened, and I see no real evidence of that 45 years later. Satanic panic was called such for a reason. Even when I attended a Christian grade school, we had to watch a video that documented heavy metal music as a gateway to drugs, murder, and Satanism. I still lean towards the random attack theory, or that it was committed by a known convicted killer. In next week's episode, I explore one of those known killers. I investigate the Halloween killer, Gerald Turner. If you knew Tina, or have any tips or clues regarding her unsolved murder, please contact me at info at searchingforclosure.com or participate in our Facebook group. Just search Facebook for Searching for Closure. Every time I post a new episode, I'll also be posting a new blog entry with notes, pictures, videos, or news articles. You can find that at www.searchingforclosure.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe so that you get notifications whenever we have new episodes. Also, please spread the word on Tina. Her case has remained unsolved for 45 years and deserves closure. Until next time, thank you for listening.